You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. You've listened to oneofus.net for years. Quality shows that have made you laugh and maybe even cry. But did you know they produce podcasts that you may not have even heard of? For just a few dollars a month, you have the opportunity to hear quality podcasts like The Breakfast Pub, Plagain Bowl 2016, Get Hype Motherfuckers, The Original Gentleman. I see this as an avenue to you becoming a huge chick magnet. Oh, yeah. And the Watch a Movie With Us series. By the way, anybody thinking that his makeup is a little bit heavy here does not remember the 80s. <laughs> oh, she's thinking about banking babies right now. Oh, it turned into a phallic symbol. Become a subscriber to oneofus.net and choose your level of giving from Red Shirt, Brown Coat, Time Lord, and Jedi. And know that your donation will help bring quality oral entertainment to you for years to come. Thank you. And may Cthulhu devour your house last. Okay, generic uh, beginning of digital noise episode testing uh, one. Okay, so we should probably do something like we're just talking about nonsense that has nothing to do with the actual show. I don't know. I think we should ju- just go with a bunch of puns and quips. You think? I don't know. I mean, People get just... mad about the puns. No, they get mad about Brian. They, they do, but he's he's not here, so that's it, well, neither that's here nor there. Hang on. They love Brian. Hang on. Yes? What are you doing here? I'm... I'm... What am I doing here? Wait a minute. You're not Joe. <laughs> you're not Marco. Th- this is just it's getting weird. It's you... I've missed you so much. <laughs> it's Freaky Friday. I Wait, am know. I, am I in Marco's body? No. Oh. Way I, I'm not cuter. Sure, sure how I feel about that. <laughs> Marco's going to listen to this and go, what? I think, I think it's a lose either way, but it's yeah. just, you know. <laughs> and you're definitely not in Joe's body. Uh, 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 no. Yeah. Not happening. He would, not today. He would uh, automatically reject the Britishness of you. Also, the, <laughs> also, I can only be so surly. True. Yeah. So anyway, I think that what we should do, we're here together. This is new. Maybe that's just exciting enough. Maybe we just go, hey, it's me and Richard together. Isn't that weird? And then say something about beer. Yeah, beer. Yeah. It is indeed the return of Chris and Richard together. Good grief! It's like it's like the not quite original lineup. <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, we've got a lot of titles to talk about this Lots. week, so uh, we'll just start off by saying first, thank you so much for listening to Digital Noise. Please use our Amazon links, which are all the images you see on the actual page of the titles that we review, to click on to buy those titles if you're so interested in, or possibly even to buy anything else. It doesn't matter as long as you start from our links. And what happens is we get a sweet little kick. 
kick back if that Woo-hoo. happens. That helps a lot. There's also lots of other things on every page you can see that clicking on will help, including the wonderful Sideshow collectibles. Oh, my God. Which are so good. Like, that's the ultimate, ultimate for geeks and uh, collectors of various Some cool things. Some of that stuff is just beyond gorgeous. Oh, there's stuff in there. I'm like, I will never be rich enough to have that. There's like five seven thousand dollar items in their catalog. I'm you're like, like wish list, wish list, yeah. wish list. Yeah, you're like no, but even then you're like no, I better put the stuff I actually could get more use out of. Wish in case list. Somebody really is like nice enough to buy me a five thousand dollar <laughs> item. It's like <laughs> I'm gonna put a new car on there before mm-hmm. I put the statue of Spider Man. You know, yeah, no. full sized statue of Spider Man. But then the there's motor in the statue of Spider Man. If you want something a little cheaper. But still, you know, really about as good as you can get in an average person's spending ability. There's Entertainment Earth, yes. which is stuff that's like awesome. But I go, I could actually afford that jet. So uh, where, where I got my uh, uh, um, uh, uh, what you call it? my DeLorean, which is pretty cool. Ooh, yeah, not full size. Not no, Back to the Future. And of course, our good friends over at Fandango. Yep, Fandango. If you click on there, you buy all the tickets to the movies you go see uh, that you've heard about here. Or anywhere, I guess. But here is the place you should be, the only place you should be listening to for movies, because I'm very jealous. Curse their other opinions of of (laughs) other people. Uh, Click on that Fandango link to buy your tickets. It really helps us out an enormous amount. And of course, last but far from least is becoming a subscriber. Becoming a subscriber is the number one way to help the site. There are four levels of subscribers, all that come with benefit and bonus shows, including the recently added uh, One of Us dot show show, which I put up on th- on uh, Fridays, but we actually do live here in Austin on Thursdays. Drunkenly and live. Drunkenly and live. Yeah, it's at 1130, which is too late for a lot of people. I quite understand, which is why we put up the podcast for the Time uh-huh. Lord and 11.30 Central, yes. which means that it's perfectly time for our fans, uh, uh, fans on Pacific time. Yes, if they want to stream it from the Mr. Tramps website. Absolutely. On. Uh, or you can go to the Ustream account for Mr. Tramps. Anyway, that uh, wraps up the house cleaning. And with no further ado, it is time for the, the review. And first up, we're going to the DC Animated Universe Woo-hoo! to see the movie, the DC anima- the DC superhero universe movie with the V in the middle that doesn't suck. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. And right off the bat, we lost like four people right there. I'd like, fuck you, Batman versus Superman was good. You're Hang on, no, this is, isn't this the moment where we prove that we are, we, we aren't on the payroll for um, DC Cinematic, but we clearly are on the payroll for DC Animated. Well, you know, I, I'll say that this Justice League versus Teen Titans is not one of my favorite DC Animated Universe films, but it's still something, I, in, at least in terms of, like, I've been waiting for a while from them to get around to the Teen Titans, something yes. I've been... I'm happy to see come along. Yes. Now, even though, like, the title is complete misnomer, because there's, like, a very short period of this film. Like, 20 seconds. Yeah, that actually involves them fighting each other. And even then, it's like, okay, well, they're not in their right minds. So that doesn't even really count. (laughs) So, yes, it's just basically, it should have been called Justice League meets the Teen Titans, or Justice League and Teen Titans see a ghost, or just, (laughs) you know, something. (laughs) Uh, But this is... uh, Directed by Sam Liu, who's been one of the go-to he's guys. He's done everything. Yeah, he I mean, is. He's been, on, he's been part of the DC animated universe since like, the since the Batman, and and he's probably earlier. Also, been one of the guys that Marvel has worked with a lot, yeah, like yeah. on Planet Hulk. He worked on that one, uh, but yeah, he's kind of moved up to a level of being in charge these days. Uh, and the idea being is that this is kind of the what I suspect is the last one in the direct series of 
focusing on Batman's young son slash ward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, what's his name? Damien. Damien Wayne and his obnoxious teenage years where he Batman's finally like... Well, he's a tween. Yeah, you know, he's not okay. even a teenager. I'm not... Can you imagine what it's going to be like when he also, gets to be 15? Much more fun. <laughs> uh, where he's like, okay, so he's smart. He stopped killing. We dealt with the problem to stop killing. We haven't quite got him being obedient, but at least he's dancing around it at this point. <laughs> uh, what we need to do is figure out how to make him socialize with other people who let's, are humans. Let's send him, to, uh, send him to hang out with the most normal teens that we know. Uh, <laughs> a, well, you a, couldn't a, send him to a regular high school. <laughs> an, an alien, a kid with a giant uh, giant scarab on his back, a kid that can turn into any animal you want, uh, and, you know, you know... And their teacher... The, 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 anti, a, the Antichrist. Yeah, their, uh, their teacher who is... Uh, Presumably based on the new 52 version, the bimbo from outer space. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot of like, you know, like much more sexualizing uh, here of um, of her than there uh, Starfire than there was in the original books, which is very much in line with the stuff that really pissed people off with the new 52 version of her. Well, she yeah. One thing was she was always sexualized. I think in the new 52, she was just badly written. Yeah, that's true. That was that was the problem. I guess that's more accurate. Yeah, Uh, she's she's a very 60s. You know, free love hippie kind of character who just was badly translated in the new 52. And here this is really kind of both mainly it's Damian Wayne's story and then Raven's story. Raven being uh, the one you've seen, if you don't read Teen Titans, she's the one in the hood who looks all gothy. Uh, who is also one of the coolest characters in there. She played here, voiced here by Thaisa Farmiga, whose father is like basically Satan or one of the various Satans in the, in the DC universe. Trigon. Trigon. Voiced, although you wouldn't be able to tell by John Bernthal. Yeah. He's, he's Kaiju Satan. Yes. Basically. Um, he does look a lot like, um, uh, one of the major, major characters from Legend of the Overfiend. That's why I think that. Well, yes. Plus, he's always giant. They never yes. make him regular size. Nope. He's always just huge. Uh, and it's she's basically he wants to possess her and use her as his entry point to come to Earth and wipe it out like he does various other points. The, the film serves as an introduction to Raven and her background and her backstory and all that stuff, which is indeed kind of interesting and cool. Yeah, particularly because they – well, that was the weird thing because she was a mainstay of the, uh, the old Teen Titans animated series. Yeah. And this has a lot of that. In it, it's got a lot of the DNA of that. Plus, you put Damien, who is has been so wonderfully executed in the uh, the DC animated universe, is just this is what happens when you go when you say, look, just get the job done. <laughs> to to a <laughs> and then generally the 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 Justice League are very much in the background in this. You do oh, have they're a, barely in it. You do, I, and they are possessed for large chunks of it. Although that's one of the, some of the most fun thing is watching them deal with the possession. Mm-hmm. Batman has a great solution. And uh, how <laughs> Superman uh, deals with the fact the Flash is possessed at one point, you just kind of go, well, yeah, I see why you did it. Kind of a dick move. True. But it's, but it's kind of awesome. Well, I mean, like, like, like I said, there's just a little bit of them in here. Mainly this is about the Teen Titans and, and uh, Damien. And on that level, it works about as well as it has to. Kind of wish that uh, Donna Troy had been part of this lineup. Yeah. I always like Donna Troy. She, yeah, but she's she, not. Uh, she, she crushed Zombie her own baby's head. Okay, extra yeah, points. But she's uh, yeah. Uh, Donna Troy is not 
the animated Teen Titans, which is what they're going on. Yeah, no, I mean, where they, they've really built around that. It's, Plus, adding uh, the uh, the modern version of, of Blue Beetle in there yeah, as well. The new because the original one wasn't like it wasn't like a scarab possession sort of permanently bonded to your body type thing, wasn't it? I thought and it was also just wasn't a fifteen year old Hispanic kid. Suit. Yeah, no, it was a ro- was it was a robot. Yeah, suit. but. Yeah, as opposed to, okay, this is built around you from some kind of magic yeah, thing. This, this isn't the best of the animated, but I liked no. it a lot. I mean, not least because I'm just glad that they're putting Justice, they're, they're putting Teen Titans in there, who the animated Teen Titans were, you know, I thought were great, and I think they really captured the spirit of them, plus adding Damien in as the constant irritant, I think really worked. I think, like, I'm just glad that it feels like they're possibly bringing the Damien, every single animated film in a row of, like, five of them has had to have been about Damien, and it's been alternately fun to just okay, yeah. but I'm ready for them to move on. <laughs> and this feels like that point where they move on. Okay, we dropped them off at school, now let's well, let the I... grown-ups go do some stuff. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, always one of the reasons to buy these. In fact, I hope someday they just take all the documentary features from all these and just put them on one disc. Yes. Because that's one of the best things about these, where it's like the history of these franchise. And there's several things on here, one about Raven, one about Trigon, one about just in general, the Teen Titans, which is the best of it, which is just the whole history of that comic book, which is really interesting. They never even bring up Terra, which I thought was interesting, because she, for me, was like one of those great moments in comic books where a superhero turned out to be actually a turncoat and a spy yeah. who turned against them and got people killed. You're like, wow, that's never happened before. Yeah. Big deal. Anyway, of course, the sneak peek at Killing Joke, uh, which is the longest sneak peek they've ever done. It's like over. Which they've now confirmed long. is going to be is going to be R. Yes, it, yes, which it is. is um, which is, I guess, exciting. I don't know. It's, it's a decision that was made. We'll see that. We'll see when we see it. Yeah. All right. Moving on, we have. Hashtag horror. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a hard time finding anything on this because I kept having to go like, wait a minute. Every time you do hashtag in front of anything in a search bar, it thinks you're trying to do some function. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is is my swing and a miss of the week. I've got to say. It's it's like... What was that one with the... Uh, it's like Spring Breakers horror, but with 12-year-old girls yeah. instead. Yeah. It feels like that kind of, like, really misanthropic, but trying to be arty about it. Well, the arty really thing is the interesting thing, because what this comes... Uh, you know, uh, this is the uh, brainchild of first-time uh, feature director, uh, Tara Sukhoff, who actually comes from an installation and conceptual art background. Yeah, I mean, this film actually premiered at the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah, as which, a favor, which clearly. After I've seen it, I'm like, that's the most pretentious thing I've ever heard yeah, of. Yeah, and in fact, if you, if you really know contemporary art, um, the house that they shoot everything in is filled with work, original works by modern contemporary artists. Yeah, I figured those were real. In fact, the most interesting thing about this film is that there are all these subtle digital tweakings of the weird, crazy art that's in this weird, crazy house they're in. That, like, if you're just paying attention to the background every once in a while, like a statue's eyes will become an actual person's eyes and start blinking or yeah. things like that. And you're like, wow, that's weird. There's all these tiny moments. And the basic idea There's is. There's nothing to do with the plot, by yeah. the way. <laughs> I mean, the basic idea is. Is a bunch of teen girl, well, uh, preteen girls, uh, go to uh, one of their friends' houses for a sleepover, and are pretty awful to each other. And then it turns out that somebody's actually murdering them. If you believe this movie, twelve-year-old girls are the worst people on the whole planet. Well, 
<laughs> if you believe anybody who teaches 12-year-old girls as a fellow, they may make this suggestion to you as well. I, I don't know. But that's know. the thing. I mean, it's like, it, this is, you know, they, they are portrayed, particularly with involvement in social media, as, you know, pretty awful characters and pretty unpleasant to each other. Meanwhile, adults randomly turn up, have scenes, disappear for a while... Seem to be in completely different films to each other, well, cl- or or just randomly die. Balthazar Getty dies like twenty before seconds he, in. Yeah, like, before he gets almost what? anything to do in this film. Yeah. And you know, Colise Vigny is the parent of one of these Timothy kids. Timothy Hutton is the parent of one of them. Natasha Leone, and kind of the point of the, their whole roles to show: see, this is what happens when parents let kids do whatever the fuck they want, so they can lead their own lives and let them have full, unfettered access to social media, which is like. This, you're not, you, that's not even really an artistic point you're making. That argument's been going on for ten years now, and or, if not longer. And it's it just felt like having someone drive, drive a, a this is my point nail deep into your eye using bad art to this do is, it. This is an example of, of what I think is one of the worst things when, quote-unquote, serious directors try and do a genre film is that they, they come at you like they're going, look what we found! We've come up with this great idea! And it's like, yeah, what you did was find something that was in Astounding Tales in 1952. <laughs> and this really feels like, yeah, something like Cherry Falls updated, but not knowing that something like Cherry Falls existed. I didn't know what Cherry Falls was, so that's okay. Oh, you've never seen Cherry Falls? No, I've never seen it. Oh, awesome weird little uh, movie from uh, oh mid-90s. Okay. Uh, in which, at which point, uh, uh, because the whole th- thing is that... Uh, You've got a serial killer who only kills virgins, so everybody's trying to, uh, try to get, trying to get laid as fast as they can, so it's a reversal of the trope. And then it has I a need to re- be in that world. Very, uh, <laughs> one of the better weirdo Britney Murphy performances. Okay. And I kept watching this and going, oh my god, I wish I was watching that instead. <laughs> this feels like it's trying to go for the absurdity of something like Freeway, but it doesn't work. It's never funny when it no. wants to be at all. It's definitely not scary when it wants to be. And when it wants to be artistic, which it's doing by mean of like I, like constantly having on the screen, because the girls are constantly on their cell phones doing stuff. So they'll do these things with photos they're taking or photos that whoever's watching them is taking with all this really awful, like J phone animation oh, yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, constantly. Just, and it's just, the thing is, it's badly done. It's, by, it, it, it's like the horror aspect. Yeah. Is horror done by somebody who doesn't understand what horror is? They've just had it vaguely explained to them and wants you to be impressed. Um, you know, the so, this social media thing that's been constructed in the middle of the, you know, the film doesn't feel real yeah it feels completely bad and fake and like it wouldn't get past beta and it would you'd never get funding for for, you'd never get investor funding yeah you know this this wouldn't happen and the girls would just go oh god this is so lame where (laughs) it's where it's actually fun and where this film should have gone is just what happens when you get a bunch of really spoiled kids and who are on social media and being mean to each other all the time and are stuck in a house and have to actually confront each other. And those sequences are actually really fun and interesting and have something smart to say. And then you've got all this crap laid on top that just does not work. I can't even go as far as you are to be nice to this film. I was like miserable. Oh, come on, the weird, the weird dance sequence where they're wearing the masks. Okay, that, that was fun. Like, those moments actually yeah. work and you kind of claw everything away. But they work, in, they work in the sense of like, this would be a really cool music video sequence where it'd be creepy and weird. You'd be like, what's going on? But, yeah. but, they, but they, they're like set pieces they're yeah, not really no, they don't really work in the I mean, context like, if you of you have this kind else. of a, as a weird abstract set piece driven 
social commentary, there's actually something in there. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's fully developed. I'm saying <laughs> that would have been a, a far more interesting thing. Yeah, you're, you're, you're probably right. As it is, uh, hashtag horror is a mess. And I'm feeling it's just hashtag going to... Hashtag don't buy. I feel it's going to make most people just mad enough to not even finish it who start watching it. Quite. I don't know. There's, there's kind of some car crash charm to it. Um, you know, by the end, I was glad I got all the way through it because some really bizarre shit happens towards the end that I was like... It doesn't make any sense. And I was like, well, you know what? I'll give them points that at least it's not just another slasher film, yeah. you know? But that's even so, it's like, hey, go do your history, your homework in horror before you make a horror movie. Yeah. Uh, next up is by by a horror film by someone who clearly did do their homework ahead yeah, of time. Yeah, a guy called Corin Hardy who actually starts off making little um, creature effects in his kitchen because he loves... Uh, King Kong so much when he was a kid. Well, there you go. And boy, does it shine through in one of my favorite creature features in ages. Yeah, this is The Hallow, uh, a, another Irish horror film. I say another because I didn't do it on Digital Noise. I didn't get sent it, but recently discovered on Netflix one called The Canal, Irish oh. horror that was wonderful. Oh, there's so... Uh, Ireland's doing the best horror at the moment. It's really Bar interesting not. what's happening Bar over there. Even the bad Irish horror is at least got some some fascinating ideas. Yeah, there's it? been stuff for the last several, four or five years that have been oh, slowly building up from it's Ireland. About a decade of, of really great work. Uh, but this film follows Adam, who's a conservationist, like a tree, not really a tree doctor, but he works with that sort of thing. Uh, played by Adam Hitchens, or, I'm sorry, played by Joseph Mall, who uh, is there with his family at, in the middle of an Irish, a remote Irish village, surrounded by this huge forest, and everyone there is like, "Stop fucking around in the forest. We don't want you fucking in that forest. Leave it alone." And they're all super, super, super superstitious, yeah. <laughs> and he's like. Oh, fucking rednecks! And yeah, you get, cause it, and it plays it very well. You initially think like they're they're you know they are straw dogs, rednecks threatening his family. Yeah, he quickly realizes that's not a th- that's not a threat. It's it's a scared warning. Yeah, it's a warning by people who are themselves afraid. Yeah, yeah, and even then he thinks, well, maybe these people are afraid enough that they're. You know, they're still clearly fucking with me. The man's a scientist, for God's sakes. However, it's not long before science is thrown out the window in this movie and they realize we're kind of fucked. Yes. Because the woods are indeed very much alive with creatures of all sorts of shapes and sizes uh, from other worlds. And they don't want those people there at all. Well, what I really love was the, about this was that it brings in so many parts of Irish mythology mm. and actually creates a scientific logic behind them that is still dark and weird and bizarre, but you go, yeah, you could see how if you didn't understand how this works, this would just purely be supernatural. He tries to merge this supernatural world of of fairies with a science to it, uh, however lightly, but enough to give you the feeling like they're not being lazy about this at all. No, it works. Yeah. It uh, works. And it brings in, you know, little hints and moments like you know there's a reason why there are iron bars on the window not just bars but iron bars on the window that really pull in celtic and gaelic mythology so beautifully and then the, the the creatures themselves. The creatures themselves are the highlight of this thing. The creature design on this is so good. Uh, and there's so many variations on this. And just the base sort of element of these creatures that kind of in and of itself creates these creatures. Uh, the 
is so, so well done and so icky yeah. <laughs> that you'll be kind of like not want to touch anything that's black and tar-like for quite some ever, time. Ever. <laughs> ever. This could have been horribly derivative. It could have been unimaginative. Instead, this is rather wonderful. Yeah. This I, is one of my... This, this is... You know, it's a real shame this got such a limited theatrical. Uh, I think it got, probably got overshadowed a little bit by um, Krampus, which, you know, the other really fun creature feature but this is yeah. way darker than Krampus oh yeah uh, I mean Krampus is definitely a horror comedy there's no comedy going on here no no, no. I, I think at it's worst uh, this it movie isn't quite as scary as it wants to be but it's definitely very tense all the way throughout oh, yeah. I mean there's a there's a few that was supposed to make you really jump moments that didn't have I didn't think really worked but like overall who cares this is such a well crafted yeah. uh, movie a creature feature movie that you really want to see this mythology continue to build and evolve I was like okay this is the really the first really interesting new take on monsters we've seen in from horror in quite some time and it's got michael smiley in who turns up as the uh, as the garda uh, at one point which is actually a really clever piece of casting because uh, and they talk about this in one of the extras that you've got michael smiley who's one of the definitive northern irish actors mm-hmm. uh playing a an a southern irish police officer and the dis- why they went with that decision and like the extras are well worth going through on this yeah there's a- the only problem is that there's kind of like these little chapter extras are like oh yo here's the effects and here's this and it's actually most of it is just edited down versions of the much longer uh, making of which is absolutely worth sitting through if you have an interest in uh, you know in what the story is behind this and what the mythology is but also if you're interested in making your own monster uh, own creature film and go I can't do this. Yeah. Like it really walks you through like how we, how they got every penny out of their budget to make these monsters look as good as anything. Anybody's thrown out. And they really do. Yeah. Uh, Hallow comes highly recommended. Yep. I was going to say, I have never seen our next one, another horror film, but one that's an old classic from 1960. Never had seen the city of the dead. And AKA horror hotel, horror hotel, which is what was called released under here. Yep. Right. Uh, this British film, uh, was a starring vehicle for Christopher Lee, so obviously the perfect time to watch it, re-release it with his recent death. Uh, and there, in fact, is an extra feature on here that it calls an interview with Christopher Lee, but it's really just someone pointing a camera at him while he's signing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> still great, though. Yeah, still cool to have. Anyway, uh, this is, you know, I'm going to say it in some ways, I like this better than Black Baba's Black Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, which which is it also, does have a lot of, lot of similarities. has a lot of similarities with uh, that this is definitely about witches and about Salem and it's uh, even though not set in Salem it's come on it's Salem yeah (laughs) (laughs) clearly clearly Salem it's like yeah stuff happened in Salem but like it was worse here Uh, Christopher Lee plays a uh, professor of the supernatural who has a young student played by Venetia Stevenson who goes who is like hey I want to go to this town that's nearby called Whitewood that's very famous because that was you know basically Salem it's where they burned witches and all this and this very famous witch there uh uh, named Elizabeth Selwyn, and he's like, "Yeah, by all means, I'll set you up. Even I, I, I know that town well. I'll set you up with a hotel there and everything." And she gets there, and it is like the it's like if there was a gothic amusement park, and that was just like the part, like the Main Street USA part of it. That yeah. would be what it would look like. It's just like knee high fog all, all the, the time. All the time, the buildings are all kind of decrepit and falling apart. Cre- creepy residents. <laughs> the 
there's a there's there who, is a who ch- appear and disappear randomly. There is a church falling apart, but that has a priest still in it, the only member of the whole parish. But he's blind and won't let anyone in the church. Yes, for <laughs> reasons that are. Hmm. And she quickly disappears. Well, she should disappear. We see flat out. The town's filled with witches, and they they fucking sacrifice her to the devil. Bad things happen to uh, her. But then you know the next half of the film is the search for her. What happens is a bunch of people go to the town to try and figure out what happened and have to themselves battle against the servants of the devil. We, I, this is so it, it, it's so set bound. Mm-hmm. But John Moxie, the director, mm-hmm. absolutely makes that work. Moxie did a huge amount of television work after, before and after this, including a lot of the uh, '80s action series. He was around forever and ever and ever. Uh, this is, he takes the fact that this is is clearly set in the studio and makes it work because he makes it feel uncanny, like you're in this sealed bubble of strangeness. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, this is I, just wonderful, wonderful, strange little movie. Christopher mm-hmm. Lee is at his unnerving best, and even, it, even when he's being nice. And it moves like, so oh my God. quick, it, yeah. which is nice, because some of these films in this period really have way too many side stories going on and things, and this, it just goes right from one thing to and the it, next. it's really fascinating as a, as a point in Christopher Lee's career, because he actually took this rather than going and doing some more Hammer stuff. He actually, because they wanted to do another Frankenstein film. He said, I don't want to do another Frankenstein film. Yeah. We've done the story. And honestly, I feel we're getting a little bit gory for my taste. And he went and did this, you know, much more as a classic Gothic mood piece. Yeah. Absolutely works in that way. Yeah, totally nails it. And at 76 minutes, this is brisk and fun and gothy and gives you everything you want from a British horror film of the period. City of the Dead, well worth your time. And a loaded edition uh, from, uh, who is it to put this out? Uh, I think it's VCI. Uh, yeah, new new commentary uh, by Bruce Hallenbeck. Uh, Christopher Lee interview from 20, uh, 2001. Uh, the US and British versions are both on here. Uh, uh, 45 minutes interview with Christopher Lee, which is actually an interview with him, in addition to the one where they just put in the camera at him during a signing. Um Commentary by commentary with uh, John Moxie, the director. This is actually for for a you know little vintage movie that really didn't get the the you know it kind of fell between it, it fell a lot of the cracks when it came out. Time. Even when it came out, yeah, it was kind of like people were like, yeah, it's good. But, yeah, you know. it's I, I I describe the look of it as like a like a Roger Corman Alan, Edgar Allan Poe film uh, if he couldn't afford um, Technicolor. Interestingly, one of the only real differences seen in the British and American version is early on in here. There's a sequence with the, you know goes back in time to the original witch where she and another guy are actively calling on Satan. Yeah, like Lucifer coming, and apparently they decide that'd be too much for American audiences because yeah. they'd feel like they were witnessing a summoning of the devil and would like freak out. Yeah, I myself was like, cool. I hope the devil comes over. I could use some snacks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and also, the woman who plays the, uh, the witch was also um, one of the lead characters in um, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. That's true, yeah. eh? and uh, uh, she well, she's mainly a theatrical, uh, a theater actor. But yeah, she had a uh, was in films for a while. She was on the prison episode of The Prisoner. Uh, anyway, let's move on to another horror film, more recent one, a sequel. Slightly more recent. Somehow I just never got around to Did watching. Did you never see Bride of Reanimator? No, despite my total and utter love of the Reanimator, the Stuart Gordon directed, Brian Yu has now produced, sort of, kind of, based on Lovecraft. Yes. <laughs> horror comedy. 
Um, this sequel, which came out, what, just not even that many years later. It was like four years later or something like that. Like, I didn't even know it yeah. existed until a few years ago. That, I'm, but, I'm really shocked by that. Well, you know what? I don't mind that much because it's not all that great anyway. <laughs> Well, I mean, part of one of the big issues is that Stuart Gordon didn't want to do didn't yeah. want to do this, so he handed the reins over to Brian Yesner, who the had producer. been producer on on the original one, um, and it starts in a very impossible way because at the beginning of the, of the at the end of the last film, we'd clearly seen Herbert West is pretty much dead, eaten by yeah. cor- eaten by reanimated <laughs> corpses, uh, and now him. And Dan Kane are in, somewhere in South America. Yeah, in, in Peru. Yeah, yeah. You're like in the middle of a civil war for no reason. No that's reason. Apparent. Still talking to each other, even though clearly Dan realized that Herbert was completely insane. And also, Herbert had had a redemptive moment at the end of the last film. Now he's worse and crazier than ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they suddenly go, hey, let's just go back to the States. Aren't you both wanted for murder? And by the way, what happened to Dan's girlfriend? Yeah, they, they, go, they go back to not just the States, but the same place they same were in. Even in the same house, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> like, and we're at one point, a detective comes by, it's like, yeah, you guys, um, this mausoleum, this uh, house that, that, that it was a funeral home that you're living in that was directly connected to murders you were in a suspect in, you sure you want to stay here? I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, positive about this. Here's the thing. This, the, this film, it does the reanimator thing. Like they come, up, they have the serum again. They start reanimating body parts. Yeah. they start reanimating bodies. This goes horribly wrong. The, the twist here from the first one is really that that Herbert figures out that you can start connecting random body parts to each other, or even ones from animals. Yes. and like, and they'll come together, which is where we eventually get the main bad guy from the last one, Dr. Carl Hill, played by David Gale. We get Woo-hoo. to see him with bat wings, just his head flying around. around. Yeah, which is like, okay, that's pretty fucking funny. This- and there's kind of a triumphant final sequence where there are just tons of these creations attacking them. And a massive, clear homage to the Bride of Frankenstein, which all the way oh, through. Because yeah. weirdly, this you know, in the original film, there's there's a romance around Dan Kane because played by Bruce Abbott, who you know he's trying to protect his girlfriend, and then at the end of it makes this horrible mistake of trying to reanimate her with the fluid. Um, this time, he's a shirtless constantly. Yeah, like this guy cannot keep his top on. No, he cannot. Um, well, uh, you know, it seems only fair after Barbara couldn't in the last one. Wait, he couldn't. He was shirtless a lot in the first one. He's shirtless all the time in this. Yeah, uh, and then you know he's supposed to be desperately in love with the, with his dead girlfriend who is still dead and like we're not quite sure like what happened to the rest of it never yeah. explained um he's also also one of the rebels from Peru who he's sleeping with there's actually a deleted scene on that comes with this version and maybe the first time it's been released I'm not sure that shows there was a filmed scene but I think they decided it didn't work because they got another actress yeah. who does not look that much like Barbara Crampton at all like Barbara uh, and we're like oh well this is what happened they inject her she came back to life and she was fine and then she just died Yeah, like her body couldn't handle it which uh, makes no sense in the context of these films but he's also fixated on one of his patients as well yeah. raising again the question how does this guy have patience? Um, uh, yeah. it's just, there's so much going on that the, the script basically falls apart under the tiniest bit of examination. Well, that's the thing. But yeah, Brian that's Yosner the biggest comes problem. at it with so much 
energy and gusto that he... Cra- I think he papers over a lot of those cracks. It's not the original reanimator. The, the, but there's some great stuff. The plot it. is, like you said, nonsensical. The character motivations are the worst part. Where oh, over and over not. again, you're like, why would? Why did he do that? I don't even... That doesn't even make the slightest amount of sense. I mean, like something like 20 times in this film, you, you catch yourself saying that. Which you didn't have that problem with in the original. No. Uh, uh, at all. The biggest plus here is really the creature effects, which look great, and the bride herself, when we finally get to her, her sort of breakdown sequence is pretty fucking that is, awesome That is and one nasty. of the great underrated um, <laughs> uh, effect sequences of And here. the actress playing her just has this facial expression that's, like, horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, Yesna doesn't know how to, how to put a story together. No. Uh, uh, you know, which is weird, because two years earlier he'd done Society. He directed that, which is one of the great underrated and, and, and slowly being reappraised horror films of the era. Even though on the uh, on the the, what the the documentary that comes with this is almost an hour long, he apologizes for it on several occasions. Why would you apologize for society? <laughs> I like, know people love that shit. I guess it's a he great did. film. I, I guess he's not one of them who would like he's, it. He's an idiot. Um, I'm going to say that Brian, you're wrong. There was a reason why Arrow recently put out a phenomenal edition of that. Uh, you you're just wrong and stupid. Yeah, and this is from Arrow as well. And as always, they did a really great job oh, putting it together so with good. all the features. all the extras in the world. Uh, so next up is a new horror film, and this one is called Cherry Tree, and it's also about Irish, witches. Irish again. Yeah. No, not one good. of the better Irish yeah. films. There is some good stuff There's going on There's some great stuff here. in here. There's definitely some stuff that I was like, okay, this is, I see what you're doing there, and, and this is kind of cool. It just ultimately doesn't really come to anything that you couldn't see coming from a billion miles away. And this is one of these, like, uh, young girl in school, she's not terribly popular, uh... She, uh, the other older girls make fun of her a lot in this Irish, I guess, Catholic school. They're wearing Catholic <laughs> yeah. school girl outfits, so I guess. <laughs> yeah, let, let's presume. <laughs> uh, she, her father is dying of cancer. She's very close with, uh, and her mother long since out of the picture. And a new teacher at school is a witch who tells her basically, here's the deal. I can give you uh, your father back and cure him of cancer, and you'll also get powers, and it will be all kinds of cool and neat and pro go woman. Uh, but in exchange, you have to have a baby for me, which she's like a baby, which means, of course, the devil's baby. Yes. Yeah. And so he's like, "Well, don't worry, it won't take nine months. It'll only take six weeks." It's like Ro- it's like Rosemary's Teen Bride. It, it, it kind of is, and clearly they're they're kind of going with an alternate take of Rosemary's Baby here, yeah. like Rosemary's Baby for teenagers, and it works less than it doesn't. But there are moments here, and I think especially visually with the some of the effects of like the actual way that the the witchcraft works and the horror and the stuff with the tree. The idea of the cherry tree is the witchcraft coven is right underneath this cherry tree, and somehow that's connected to they got to eat cherries imbued with sacrificial blood or something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of stupid. But I don't know, but it's visually kind of fun. And the fact yeah. that everything that is, you know, Satan's minions aren't, aren't you know, chloride beasties or demons. No. They're centipedes. Yeah, that's... Which is super yeah. creepy and yeah, super the, effective. The, the, the way that the, they use the centipedes in this, which kind of just crawl inside people, is really give you the willies. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's the best part about this. The worst part is most of the acting is pretty subpar. Yeah. Uh, pretty much across the board, including the lead, which is always a big problem. She looks bored. Yeah, she looks like she, she does not want to be bored. There. Yeah, which you shouldn't be if this if this type of shit is happening in your life, bored is the last word to describe Whereas, you Whereas are. the lead witch, like, there is some great A scenery chewing going on here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's definitely... But that's the thing is, like, 
I felt like even that was kind of a mistake because you're just not that kind of a witch. Yeah. You know, the movie can't decide what kind of movie it wants to be, you know, and I think ultimately that's its problem. And at the end, it defaults to really generic horror tropes. That well, I was at the like, end, ah. it goes um, uh, full books of blood, basically. Yeah. It's very Clive Barkerish in its final act. I, I just, uh, we're including some stuff that really has not made a lot of sense yeah. previously. I think that's overall my bigger problem because I think a lot of the stuff in here was trying to create, like, set its rules. And the end was like, ah, fuck the rules. We're just going to do what the hell we, we looks cool. Yeah. And I'm like, Which actually um, kind of works better. <laughs> I, maybe, it, maybe it would have been the alternative, but I'll, alternately, I don't think it really worked that well either. No. So. That's Cherry Tree. Next up is a new box set from Arrow Films called Death Walks Twice. Two films by Luciano Ercole. Uh, all right. So here's the thing. A t- Giallo is a thing I love. Yeah. But Giallo has a lot of films that are also, I guess, technically Giallo, that, uh, but less on the horror aspect, more on the mystery, that aren't all well, that great. The thing <laughs> is that Giallo, you know, pure Giallo is actually a, you know, the, the genre starts off as thrillers. Yes. I mean, they start crime thrillers. Yes. And what's interesting is that the two films here, the first one, um, Death Walks in High Heels, is very much a thriller. And the second one, Death Walks at Midnight, is much more of a horror. Yeah, but even so, doesn't quite get to no. horror. Like, I mean, there's a reason why, like, Deep Red is often often saluted as the first film that is the real first true horror giallo. Yeah. That completely is like, yes, it is a procedural mystery, but there's no question it's a slasher horror film as yeah. well. <laughs> this does not really, it has everything to be a slasher horror film without actually being a slasher horror film. Yeah. And I think that, that therein lies the problem here. Uh, this director liked to work with a lot of the same people, well, including uh, not his least, wife. Yeah. Uh, 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 who is probably best known by her American name as Susan Scott. Yes. Uh, because you know, everything got translated. <laughs> yeah, she she uh, regularly works. She's in both of these films. And I, I guess the coolest thing in here was really, I thought, in, in um, the one that was more horror slasher, was the killer has like a metal glove with like four three-inch spikes sticking out of it that he kills people with. And yes. I was like, okay, that's pretty fucking cool. But there's really only one gore film scene in either one of these films. Um, I, well, uh Death Walks and High Heels does have, you know, that play, that's got a, a much more complicated plot. Yeah. In fact, horribly complicated, which is actually yeah. part of its downfall. I'm not quite sure what had completely happened. Well, the, the, the basic idea is this uh, jewel, <laughs> this diamond thief is killed at the beginning, and somebody, whoever the killer is, is convinced that his daughter, who is a burlesque performer played by Susan Scott, uh, that she knows where his diamonds are. Yeah. And they start on this very complicated process and she starts going out with this doctor who performs eye surgery and there's this hobo who needs eye surgery. And that's and just, well. that's, and that's just the simple part. Yeah, that's, <laughs> the first, that's the, like the first 20 minutes. Yeah, and it gets more complicated. And then they go, to, they go to the UK for a, I mean, the, like the final act. The plus act of this like, is that both these films go to these gorgeous locales, yeah. like really scenic places. The fashions are tremendous because it's yeah. Italy in the 60s. And particularly with you know. uh, Death, um, Death Walks at Midnight because the whole point is that, she, that this time Susan Scott is a, um, a a fashion model who is nearing the end of her career and for a little bit of money 
because this shit happened in in the in the seventies or sixties and seventies all the time. Really did. Go, go watch some of the videos of it. She goes, "Oh yeah, I'll take an experimental drug and talk about it to a journalist while I while I'm tripping balls." Sees a murder, but the thing yeah. is, the murder is supposed to have happened six months ago. Yeah, and and it's there. I felt I thought I was watching a remake of The Eyes of Laura Mars. Yeah, or vice versa, I guess. Yeah, which you guys are like, what's that? Don't worry about it. We'll yeah, talk yeah, about it some other time when they release that. it. Just see But, <laughs> but uh, gotcha. no, it's not that at all, and it's more complicated than that. And well, it's more complicated. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, like I said, you're watching these for the fashions. You're watching these for just seeing Italy in the 60s. You're watching it for the campiness of these things. And you're watching it for that unbelievable moment when you realize, yes, indeed, that burlesque, that black burlesque dancer you're watching is not black. That's the lead white character doing a black face burlesque dance. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a little bit awkward. Yeah, a little uh, but awkward. Susan Scott is great in both of these. Yeah, she, uh, yeah, she she's, she, you know, she's kind of sold, sold short by the end of Death Walks at Midnight, which becomes this chase sequence she's not involved in. Yeah. But she's, you know, you, particularly watching the two performances back to back, you go, she was actually really good and had some chops. Yeah, agreed. I mean, this is definitely people who already know they like this sort of thing. It's yeah, not really it, yeah, this is not an entry point for, for Giallo fans. Uh, next up is Mojave. Ugh. Uh, this, is, uh, this is one of those ones that came out and everybody was clearly very confident they had a big indie hit on their hands. And I mean, they were wrong. You have William Monaghan directing this thing who... Uh, has worked on like the departed and stuff like that. I mean, he's like pretty big name. He's, this is directorial debut and you have Oscar Isaacs. Hey, and- me- remember when all those people who go Oscar Isaacs can do no wrong. Yeah. Wrong. <laughs> Just but wrong. The problem isn't Oscar Isaac's performance here. Oh, no, it's that as well. It's it's the script, uh, which is... and No, it's not even the script. It's the, it's the direction. Yeah. Which is so bland and so uh, makes the lead character, Garrett Hudland here, like the most bland, uninteresting celebrity in the whole uninteresting world. Uninteresting and unlikable. That we're supposed to have sympathy for because he's a celebrity and bored with life. Yeah. Fuck him. But basically, he's, he plays this... this um it's not even really quite clear. I think he's supposed to be a producer. I, I get it's the idea really that he's defined. currently a producer, but he was better known. Because he says at one point, I've been famous since I was a little kid. So yeah. you're like, okay. So clearly he was a either a child actor or a child singer, and his career has gone on. And he's one of those faces that everybody in the world knows. You know? And now he's just burnt out. So he goes out to the Mojave Desert to like be grumpy. And possibly kill himself. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> My pile of money's too high. <laughs> um, and there he bumps into <laughs> what is supposed to be kind of the typical, you know, middle of the desert drifter who is clearly up to no good, but is actually Oscar Isaac in a terrible wig. Yeah, and, and, and delivering and, and, and horribly, horribly, horribly line, horrible lines badly. Like he just oh, needed to stop doesn't... saying "brother." Every oh, every other word. Line. Yeah, like, "Hey, brother, what's going on, brother?" Oh my brother, god, do you think I look? We got it. It's a speech mannerism form, but you're overusing it more than just a bit, brother. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, this is supposed to be kind of an indictment of Hollywood because it really, you know, if you watch the extras, Monaghan actually says that he came up with the idea when he was really burned out on the film industry 10 years ago, and this is kind of a dream, personal dream project for him, which is possibly the problem, because when personal dream projects come along, it's very hard for anybody to tell you, that's a really bad decision. Yeah, there's there, and the thing is, there is, I think, hidden inside this, the possibility for a really good movie. It's just not realized in any way, shape, or form. This is I, a very 80s movie. Totally. This is, you know, if this had been done in 1986 with... Nicholas Cage and Willem Dafoe. And, and this would have been great. And what's his it's, name directing? Uh, the guy did Heat. Uh, 
Oh, Michael Mann. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Michael this would have been great. Thing. Yeah. Instead, this is kind of like, oh my god, I, I'm, I'm bored. Weird sideline characters in here, like Mark Wahlberg, who plays uh, Garrett Hedlund's business partner, it. who is like here just to chew up the scenery, and he's definitely the best thing because he is the one who's just there to play Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. Uh, and- actually, this is, I, I, this is one of his best kind of weird little. Uh, character studies since uh, I Heart Huckabees. Walton Goggins is in here as well, who, playing another guy who, real, with them. who clearly realizes after about 20 seconds that this shit's beneath him and he's yeah. going to deliver his lines in the most ridiculous way possible. Yeah, he is, his character is disinterested and so is his performance yeah. here. Uh, Frank Kranz turns up and has yeah. like two lines. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be like I said, I guess we're supposed to both feel sorry for this lead guy and be condemning him, but it never, you just don't care enough. And nope. as it moves along, you're like, okay, this drifter actually is a serial killer who's been killing people and was going to kill the main character. And the main character out in the desert at one point thinking he, it was, it was him coming for him, shot first, asked questions later. Turns out it was a cop. Which is never really, like, they keep talking, they, they keep bumping into each other and talking and talking and talking about who has the intellectual high ground and who's got the evidence on the other one. I'm like, I don't care. You're yeah. both bored. Well, one of you just shoot the other yeah, one just, already. Just fucking do it. I don't care who may you get shot. The only thing that super works on this is actually the final showdown because you go, yeah, that's what that character would do. Yeah. I finally, you finally did something where I really buy what it is that you would do because you are, you know, that's where you are. You're at this point. a prick. Fine. <laughs> Good. But you got to wade through 90 minutes of just pretentious, badly written dialogue from a di- from a scriptwriter whose director, because it's the same person, wouldn't tell him, what the fuck is this line supposed to mean? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of guys, a lot of screenwriters, even the best ones, really re- Require that relationship with the director yeah, to tell them what works and what doesn't. Absolutely, and this is a case of sorely lacking here. Yeah. Uh, next up is Jane got a gun. I thought one of the nice little pleasures from this week's yeah. s- stack. Um, this is Natalie Portman in a film that's actually been held back for a couple of years. Apparently. Oh my god! This is it was development hell. Then it was then it was releasing hell. Yeah. Because everybody was attached to this project at some point or other, and just. People kept falling off it, and then it just got caught in the release schedules. I think mainly because the uh, the Weinstein Company had so much other stuff that they were putting out that they just could not find a slot for it. But I remember when this was going to be a big release. Oh yeah, it was like then now it just kind of disappeared to blue direct to Blu-ray. But it's uh, Gavin O'Connor, the same guy who did the wonderful film Warrior. Yep. If you ever got a chance to see that, so good. Um, but he's making a dark, but not. You know, not Nick Cave wrote it dark. <laughs> I don't know. know, it's not. Well, it is actually that dark for large chunks of it, and then has a. takes some weird turns. It does. Uh, here, Natalie Portman plays Jane, the titular Jane, who is. Uh, taking who has her husband Noah Emmerich come home shot to pieces yeah. and going like they're coming and she's like fuck and a lot of this movie is you figuring out okay what what's happening here there's a lot of like explaining after the fact and tiny bits of flashbacks that you piece together to get the whole story behind these characters uh, he's at a point where she doesn't know if he's going to live or not 
But either way, she knows she's going to need help. She's got a young daughter in the house. So she goes to the house of Dan Frost, played by Joel Edgerton, who is her old, her ex-lover, ex-fiance. Ex-fiance. Who's like, fuck you. I want nothing to do with you. Get the fuck off my property. You're a piece of shit. I hate you. Uh, And of course, that doesn't last. He ends up showing up and saving her ass when she's a... She's in town she, and about to get attacked by one of the douchebags from the that, that spawn off the villain, played by Ewan McGregor. Yes, uh, John Bishop plays a lovely villain here. Yeah, oh great! And this is the thing, you know, you there's no character here who isn't at least morally compromised at some point or other. True, including Jane, who. Yeah. But but their moral compromise is you look at them and go I understand why they did that mm-hmm. which I think is the root of the of the western I mean they, you know it's the western is not about location it's about people who go you know I'm in the middle of nowhere I've got to do this thing to survive yeah uh, which is you know really what she you know why does she stay with this guy who when you first find out anything about him you know Hammond has got a, a five thousand dollar bounty on his head for a reason this is not a good man so why does she stay with him and when it's explained why she stays with him you kind of go absolutely and there's a pleasure absolutely. to this film that i think is more inherent than anything else in the way that it play peer pe- pieces out that information yeah and letting you bit by bit understand who these characters are what their relationship to each other are how things may not be how they initially seem to you but in fact had when taken in context are is something very different uh, and is like one of those by the end, you know exactly how you're supposed to feel about everyone yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're ready for a damn good gunfight. That's exactly what you get. <laughs> yeah. And not just a gunfight. There's yeah. actually, there's some really smart stuff done in that, that final showdown where you go, yeah, that's how you, that's how you win this when you're horribly outgunned. Yeah. This actually really works. I mean, this is a, a you know, a, a really fine, heartfelt Western, yeah. um, well plotted, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Natalie Portman occasionally I, I wanted a little bit more from her as a balance to Joel Edgerton because mm-hmm. so much of the performance is, is is so much of the film is those two. Yes, and Edgerton it just is so he's all in. effortless yeah. in this, and, and you know Portman isn't quite there. With it, you almost feel like it's a weakness that he actually feels anything for. You almost... Uh, I um, I felt like she was playing... Like, she didn't totally get this character who is not quite the school marm type she's portraying her as. Yeah. You know, I was like, I kind of pictured somebody a little more laid back in terms of, like, just her general demeanor than she is. You know, or, she's or, very uptight. Or, uh, also, not, not as toughened as she would need to be in yeah, some way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, her, her actions are, but her... her, her her the way she does things yeah the way she handles herself is like a school marm but then the stuff she does is like okay well i'm a little and better why she's there and the, you know she's been through a lot more than you'd think she'd act like this yeah but so, yeah regardless of you know agreed this final version was not wide release ready yeah you know um it's a great home release and one oh, yeah. well worth your time to check out jane got a gun a lot of fun I had, despite massive problems with this film, I mean, boy, <laughs> I had a lot of fun watching uh, the Hong Kong film, or the Chinese film, The Great Hypnotist, anyway, because, yes. boy, does it have a set of balls on it. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> this you is- walk in and you go, you know what? We're going to rip off Inception and The Sixth Sense. Oh, yeah. Constantly. And, and more than that. Unapologetically. Just 
I'm not even sure how many movies this ripped off. Oh, but yeah. but it ripped it off in a way that wasn't a this is an image taken from that. It's just ripping off ideas and merging them all into this totally batshit insane like procedural thriller sorta. I don't even know how to describe it, really, because it kind of stands on its own in a weird sort of way. Yeah. The biggest problem with this film is ultimately by the end, there's just, you're like, I, I can suspend my belief as much as the next guy, but come on. And one of it is that as a skeptic, I know that hypnotism on the level they're doing it here, that's not how hypnotism no. works. No. But if you believe the fantasy that hypnotism can really transform you, you know, and make you, like, go to whatever the hypnotist says you're experiencing, then... Okay, that's where we're starting from for this film. Yeah, honestly, this feels like a, a, an early 20th century novel. Yeah. It has that approach to, to, to you know, oh, the mysteries of the minds that can just be untapped by having somebody count backwards from, from <laughs> 10. Like, and, no. And superhero dude, hypnotists. No. Like, yeah. You get the, the, the main guy... Uh, is like he's the guy they set up as the the titular great hypnotist, and the, he's asked by a colleague, "Look, I have this woman. She thinks she can see ghosts, and the truth is, I think it's much deeper than that. I think you might be the only one who can help her. Other people have tried to help her; they have not been able to. In fact, he, in a conversation with one of them, she's like, the, the another colleague's like, you need to just forget this and get the fuck out of there. This is bullshit. Don't yeah. do this. Yeah, she, <laughs> she's she's not right, and I don't mean not right in the normal way. Yeah, just no. Yeah, uh, but he's like, I mean, he's all ego. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm going to take this on. And the movie goes back and forth from you feeling like, okay, he is totally figuring out that there is no such thing as ghosts and that everything that's going on in this woman's past is, like, in, in her mind, is just representative of things in their past that they're piecing together. You go back and forth from that to, no, there really are ghosts and he's totally wrong about everything, to some mixture of the two, to a completely other alternative that, wait, maybe in some weird way she's also got powers over him yeah. because he keeps going into these weird hypnotic trances as well at points you're like it's re- it's not hard to follow it's just hard to piece together but in this film's credit credit which a lot of chinese films don't even bother with at the end it's like okay here's the here's the glorious info dump here's the which guide is, to everything you just saw which, so you can piece it together and what's weird <laughs> is when that comes it doesn't feel awkward yeah and i think a lot of that is because the 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 central relationship between um, uh, Zhu Zheng as the uh, the hypnotist and um, Karen Mok uh, as um, his patient works incredibly well. Those two spark great chemistry together. Great chemistry together. If there's a if there's a real weak spot for me, I hated the score, yeah. which at, at various points felt either just overly operatic and didn't really match with the action, or just tonally off. No, no. I, uh, and that was totally. a real issue for me. That's uh, another thing common with a lot of Chinese films. Yeah. Is like this total misunderstanding of what music belongs in a sequence. I, I really think that you know, you'll actually have a major break, international breakthrough again when you get somebody else doing a, a you know basically a score for Western audiences. True. For, and, uh, for some other some of these films. And this is, scores don't work. This is a film, I'm telling you, Somebody in America is going to make a remake of this, and it's going to be a directed DVD film, and it probably won't be that great. Yeah, but they're def- somebody's definitely right now negotiating for rights. To oh this. my god, yeah, because this is very Western in concept, totally, and I think that Western audiences are going to watch this, and there's going to be a little cult following around this film. Yeah, 
That for sure. The Great Hypnotist, check it out. See if you're one of those people who's going to fall madly in love with it. It's certainly one of the more interesting films I've seen out of their industry. Oh, lately. yes. Next up is Identicals. Um, this is what happens <sighs> when uh, people who are very artistic decide they understand the sci-fi genre and are going to make a film that will make people record the greats like 2001 or Blade Runner with oh, very no, little this money. Is, this is somebody that, that's, <laughs> that's stumbled across a bunch of 1960s Polish and Czechoslovakian uh, science fiction movies and probably should have had the tape slapped out of their hands because they really didn't get what the fuck they were doing. It's just so fucking boring is the problem with Identicals, and it doesn't sell itself. If you watch the trailer for this, that is not what this is selling itself as. But yeah, this is supposed to be very cerebral, uh, even though I think that the only reason way it's cerebral is in that and so little is happening during most of it, you can't help but start thinking about other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> or, or even worse, go, why is that happening? Yeah. Um, should, I, should I do the explanation? Yeah, go ahead. What made, made Just, my head I, I have a hard time thinking of how to sum this up, but go ahead. So, Guy has great relationship with his girlfriend, and then one night they're home, and people turn up at the door and go, where's your girlfriend? He goes... Why are you here? And they go, shut up. And <laughs> he wakes up and there's a dead body there. And it's a dead body that's had surgery to look like his girlfriend who's now disappeared. And then he finds that she has been she has been kidnapped so that the person who was whose dead body is there was going to take her life, but they That he wasn't supposed to ever know the switch was happening. Yeah. Um, because this is a business, apparently, where, where it's like, oh, her life was so perfect that somebody else has gone, I want her life. Yeah. And then they do the same thing for him because they can't work out what else to do with him. Yeah. And then he runs into his ex, his kidnapped girlfriend, who now has also got a different life. And this happens multiple times because they keep having to move yeah. them because Except they keep she... realizing. And it's like... She what looks, kind of business model is this? Yeah, it's not. Where's the money? Yeah, I have no idea. There's never any connection to indicate towards the, which you'd ex, which you really expect at the end. Okay, here's the layer that explains why anyone would bother doing all this stuff. And, and how that's on just earth do you not think there. you're going to get away with it? Because clearly, <laughs> whoever it was that they'd sent it after a while, go, yeah, I, I don't know, sweetie, you, your personality's really changed. I don't really feel we fit together anymore. And so the whole business model falls down. And it's very, it said, oh, it's a business. Like, this is what we do. Yeah, like, wh- how? Why? Why, why, why would you do this? I mean, I get they perform surgery on him as well. So in his, like, second incarnation, he doesn't look like himself. But he meets her, and she looks exactly like she did for some reason. Yeah. Even though her personality is totally different. Why that is is completely unclear. And then later she's wearing a bad blonde wig with dilated pupils and she's supposed to be somebody else again. Yeah. Why wear pupils dilated? That's I, never explained. I don't understand any of that at oh. all. And then like he's, it's, he okays with being an assassin of him, all his alter self or something just like that. Just like, okay, sure. Like yeah. for no real good reason. And I think the thing, the problem we, we both seem to have had is that if we'd have cared a jot more, we might have put a lot more effort into trying to work out what was going on. Yeah. But I don't think it deserves the additional effort because it, it's not interesting. No, it's not just, at all. this is so boring. It's I, just you know, boring. I love cerebral, low budget science fiction movies. This just isn't. This is just, you know, it feels like somebody wanted to do something that ripped off a lot of the themes from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind about identity and connection. 
and, and, and relationships and you know if you don't know who the other person is will you you know how you know is there something in inherent in you that will always bring you back together it wants to do that it doesn't know how yeah. and then there's a lot of long boring slow cinematography that really wants to feel like a Nicholas Reffin an early Nicholas Reffin winding film and yeah. doesn't nope not nope. a bit this is identical Dire. is so such a misunderstanding of what makes science fiction work, about what makes narrative work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Humans. I, I just don't understand some of the good reviews of it, other than to say these people went into it, saw it at a festival where the director was there, and wrote things that just praised what you could, which was like, okay, some of the cinematography was pretty. And that was about it. Yeah. And even then, it's so uh, low budget, not even enough to stand out. No. You know? As they, they went to an Apple store when it was closed and filmed some stuff. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, much better than that, but still not like a masterpiece or anything. Only based on a masterpiece is the, Whoa, sci- see what you did the sci-fi channel adaptation of Childhood's End. Now, I've been saying for years, anyone asks, what are the classics of sci-fi I should read? I always list Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, which I think is his best book. Yes. Uh, in fact, and a lot of people don't realize this, but this is true, Stanley Kubrick wanted to make this, not 2001. This was the thing he spent like three years trying to get the rights to, finally gave up and did 2001 instead. Interestingly enough, that was his second choice. And it feels like a second choice. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Childhood's End is, this is divided up into two movie length or three movie-length pieces here. And the book, indeed, was divided up into three major chapters, which starts off feeling like Independence Day, although quickly you're like, okay, that's not the case, because here they're not destroying a bunch of ships, the giant ships coming into our atmosphere. They're like, guys, we just want to talk. We want to help you out. We're here to give you stuff, anything, you know, pretty much anything you want. We're going to cure all your diseases. We're going to make it so everyone on Earth isn't hungry or dying, that no one, there are no wars. And yes, we're going to enforce it if somebody starts breaking these things, but we, we're not going to put you in a position where there'll be any need for us to do that generally, because we're going to let you guys, we're going to set you guys up to do it all yourselves. We're just going to have, so we're going to start the system going. And they connect with this guy on the planet who's kind of like a Midwestern dude, very different from the book where they picked a, the head of the UN, I believe. Yes. For it. <laughs> Here they're like the the Joe Handsome in the Midwest who everybody loves. Phil Regular. <laughs> yeah, Phil Regular, which I guess the reasoning here for that is because unlike the book, like he's over in a, after the first chapter in the book here, they really wanted to make him the primary character of the whole thing. So they gave him more of an expanded and somewhat tiresome love storyline <laughs> that goes through the next two chapters. But um, it's what really makes this thing work is first off the question, you know, that point paranoia of like, well, are so are they really here for good? I mean, like they can't be right. It's three part sci fi thing. They've got to have some nefarious intent. Inevitably. I've seen V. And then the the reveal at the end of the first episode is one of the most hysterical reveals in the history of science fiction. Mm -hmm. It's like one of those ones you will laugh out loud when you see it and go like, yeah, that's fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I can see why they did that. Uh, And then the next two parts, like, okay, so then what happens after that? And honestly, this is kind of in some ways a direct attack on cynicism and xenophobia yeah. and and definitely part of Arthur C. Clarke's lifelong atheism. Yes. <laughs> you know, plays Every into show. it. Like there's certainly that that softened for the miniseries, but certainly that take on like who are gonna be the first people to freak out and act unreasonable if if like magnanimous aliens came down to cure all our, all our ills. Godmothers? Exactly. Yeah. And it was like, I'm sorry, that does you're an asshole. 
Period. <laughs> End of story. And that's kind of kind of where the, he goes with it more than this version, which definitely softens that touch uh, quite a bit. But still, this is a decent adaptation. And Charles Dance does the voice of the main alien. The only one of only, I think, two aliens we ever actually see in this. And Hello, he, budget. he is so perfectly cast for this. It is like the best role Charles Dance has ever been chosen to play. <laughs> I mean, he's like, the moment you actually see what the aliens look like and him doing it, you're like, Oh, yeah, Charles Dance was the right guy for this. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Childhood's End, actually a pretty good adaptation. It's far from perfect, especially if you've read the book. If you're one of those, I'm going to niggle about every single little point, then <clears throat> then don't watch it because you know it's just going to piss you off. But for a sci-fi channel miniseries that's only three movies long, basically, it's really pretty fucking good. And if you've never experienced Childhood's End at all, it's not the worst way to be introduced to it. Yeah. Uh, next up is one I didn't get to see, but you did. Another chapter. Well, it wouldn't have taken you long. <laughs> no, because I just didn't care. Yeah. No, that's fair. <laughs> you waited through Childhood's End when I. So you, yeah. you had six hours as opposed to my uh, half hour. Yeah, I, I just not. Like, there's a series called Live from the House of Soul, and I'm not really the. I'm. I'm a not a big music person anymore. Quite frankly, I just am not that into exploring new stuff. I'm just like whatever. I've got film and TV and books yeah. and all this stuff. I just I don't have time for music. Yeah. Uh, and and you are still more on the yeah. like. I, I mean, love all this like blues and soul and jazz. Anything and all you can, anything throw my head. Uh, yeah. Uh, sadly, uh, one of the one of the areas where I have basically no interest is Afrobeat. Okay. Uh, so, which which is, is rather unfortunate. Um, and this is oh, what the guy's name Antiballas. Uh, Antibolus. Antibolus? I, I think so. I think yeah. It that- gets pronounced a lot, and I think at least a couple of people who said very heavily stoned. Um, <laughs> you know, who, who um, you know, been around since the late 90s. You know, I mean, they're all right at what they do. I just don't like what they do. I love the format of these films, though. How, of these what short is that format? Well, basically, it's that, you know, there's this one recording studio that they... Um, that they uh, record at, and they it's got a courtyard, and they go set up in the courtyard, and they just do a half hour set, and it's great. It's just you know it's just a band with a bunch of cameras just jamming away, and there's something really beautiful about that format. Um, at the end of the day, it's not a band I care about, but it's uh, well shot. Yeah, it's well shot. Good, not it's got muddy sound. Heart. It, you know, the band really wants to be there. It's clearly an environment they love being in because it's literally it's the studio upstairs they recorded it. So they're just like, let's go do this. It's cool. You know, it's what we want to do. You know, it's, it's like, again, not a mu- You know, I mean, honestly, I think get the Charles Bradley one instead. Yeah. Unless you are a big fan of Afrobeat. Yeah. The Charles Bradley one's fantastic because it, and that's got, it's a half hour live performance, bunch of videos. Um, that they shot specially for it. Uh, Charles Bradley talking about his life and career, and Charles Bradley is one fucking interesting cat. This isn't, you know, this is more if you like the band, get it. If you like Avrobeat, get it. Put it on in parties on loop. Beyond that, you know, go get the Charles Bradley one instead because everybody should know who Charles Bradley is. Fair enough. All right, next up is The Lady in the Van. Are we heading into the Oscar bait sequence? We are. (laughs) We are. This was the week when a lot of Oscar bait came out. Uh, This is uh, the feel-good British quirky uh, quirky characters comedy of the year for Oscar bait. Yeah, this was (laughs) The Lady in the Van. Yeah, Um, and I actually really thoroughly enjoyed this. This is the third version of this that's been made. Well, this thing has been going on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever because the backstory 
story on this is that this is based on the yeah this is the true story true mostly uh, story Alan Bennett the extremely well respected and important British playwright and writer um, moved into a, a London uh, into a, into a posh bit of London where he always was the outsider because uh, he was uh, he was you know. Uh, a closeted gay, yeah. uh, and B from the north of England. It was actually the north of England thing that made him more of the outsider. Um, and this old woman suddenly goes, "I'm going to park my van in front of your house. Now I'm going to park my van in front, actually on your driveway." Yeah. <laughs> and only Alan Bennett would have gone okay and not just called the police because he's just like, and. She ended up being there 15 years. Yeah. Completely true story. Which is about as many times as Maggie Smith has played the role yeah. in various and iterations it's, Maggie of Maggie Smith it. has done this, <laughs> done this part. You know, he wrote the original play and she's done it time and time again. This is a part that yeah. she's come back to. And now she's actually closer to basically the age, the right age she the should be for the character at the end of the, at the end of the film. Whereas you know, previously she was playing older Yes. Yeah, she's kind of gone through all she the phases did it on of the stage. Camera. She did it on radio, and now she's doing it for film. And mm. now we get to see it. <laughs> and <laughs> you know? it's, you know, it is a period piece in a lot of ways about you know what Britain was like in the seventies, going into the eighties. Mm-hmm. You know, there are moments where I think that, you know the when she's in the van and she's run the power cable down so she can. Um, uh, she she can watch the the Queen's Jubilee. We all watch the Jubilee celebrations. That's what you did. So she's still yeah. There's still those moments in there. Um, you know, honestly, I wasn't particularly taken with the bits with Maggie Smith as the old as the old lady because there is something that happens right at the beginning where you go, okay, my my sympathy for her is is dented from moment one because she made a decision that has put her on this trajectory. And while I have some empathy for her, I've got some empathy for her, you know, for something, for people who are affected by her, by her one particular thing that she does. And I think it's actually a structural problem that you have that flashback right at the beginning. Instead it's of a later real on. mistake. Well, it, you know, because it really does stand there. What's really wonderful for, uh, in this is Alex Jennings as Alan Bennett. Who does a wonderful He job. does an amazing job because he plays both sides of Alan Bennett. He plays Alan Bennett, the playwright, and Alan Bennett, the person who actually interacts with the real world. And a lot of the text is really about him using uh, Maggie Smith's character, who has multiple names, we find out why later on, uh, as a proxy for his own broken relationship with his uh, with his mother, who's still up in Yorkshire. Yeah, and the, the, you, know, you get these two sides of himself arguing about why do you have her here when you're abandoning your own mother? Why don't you go deal with the real issues in your life and about you know his sense of guilt and abandonment? And responsibility and all these things and his passivity, which is really interestingly handled. This is, you know, people have said, oh, this is really about, uh, you know, Maggie Smith's character. It's not. This is Alan Bennett writing about Alan Bennett. Which makes more sense. Very self-accusatory. Fascinating. I will say I disagree with you about the beginning. I think that works because I think this film wants you to dislike her at first. I think it wants you to gradually warm towards her and figure out that, yes, she has some good qualities. And finding out more about who she really was as the film goes on makes you actually like her more. Because at first you're like... 
look, we feel like we all do when there's a crazy homeless person who moves into our neighborhood. It's like, yes, that's terrible that they've got dementia or whatever, but they can't stay here. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it doesn't really want you to like, feel anything real special for her. But as the movie goes on, you do warm up to her, despite the fact she's completely irascible and irrational and just plain mean at times. Yeah. Uh, but she, at other times, can be completely lovely and wonderful. And you're like, okay, piecing that together. And then at the same time, Alan Bennett's character, the character of Alan Bennett, piecing together his own life and his why he's even doing this with this woman. Yeah. Why he's the one person with his in his neighborhood willing to essentially take care of her, to let her live. To tolerate her. Yeah, to tolerate her. And that's the thing, because it's not like he, he throws his house open no. to it. He just doesn't get in the way of her being annoying. Yeah. And, you know, basically lets her uh, mount this little invasion. And, uh, you know, and, and that's what's really fascinating here for me. And, you know, I, the fact that he's, you actually look at the poster, that, you know, he's somewhere in the background. It's like, this film's really about him. You're kind of getting a miss, getting a little bit missold. Well, they're way. definitely selling it on Maggie Smith in yeah. terms of watch this movie. She isn't she the great Maggie Smith. She's wonderful. You should watch her in her. And they're not wrong. No. She's a wonderful actress. And this is a very strong performance for her that she's had a lot of practice at. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I think at that level, even on that level alone, you're like, okay, this is really good. But yeah, I, I think overall it's a very strong film. Uh, there's a decent amount of extra features on here. Uh, most of the relatively short but you know all of them various segments of like here's how we did this part of the, of the movie here's how we did that part of the movie here's what maggie smith maggie smith's uh, uh transformation here's the how we did the visual effects in here because there is a certain amount of meta-ness to the narrative going on here that yeah. has sort of visual imagination to and uh, uh commentary track from director nicholas heitner uh i would have loved an alan bennett commentary track yeah that, would have been the, <laughs> that seems like the one you would have wanted preferred yeah yeah not least because you would have heard alan bennett talking like this okay so next up is the darkest horror film of the set today <laughs> although not technically a horror film it sure looks like one that is the Academy Award winning for best foreign film, uh, foreign language film, Son of Saul. Yes. Um, he, Saul Fia. I know I'm supposed to just rave all over this thing. I know I am. And I think it's very well made film about a character who is so thoroughly unlikable and despicable <laughs> that um, I. Well, he's not, he's not despicable. He's just so obsessed. Yeah, he's not despicable. He's obsessed to the extent that he does not care who gets fucked for the thing that he clearly has dementia over believing. Yeah. You know, uh, this is a guy during the Holocaust. So right now you can start yelling at me now. Go yeah, ahead. just, just yeah. get that out of the way. <laughs> uh, who's a prisoner and is one of those uh, people who's a... He's a Sonder commander. Some, some, yeah, they, he's the people in charge of burning the rest of the dead. He finds the body of a boy he believes is his son, uh, and he basically tries to... He, he, he takes the body to uh, the prison doctor and convinces him not to perform an autopsy, and all he wants to do is to bury, bury this kid's body in a, in a proper place, in consecrated ground. Let him, yeah. yeah. I don't understand the rules entirely, uh, but uh, uh, he wants to find he, a rabbi. He wants to find a rabbi because, because everybody else goes, look, we, we've, we've said the prayers for the dead over his body. That's enough. Yeah. He's like, no, no, no. It has to be a rabbi. It has to be the, the, full, the full thing. That you know, and it, it's obviously an attempt for him to hang on to his life before he was in the concentration camps. Yes, um, but it is done at the, done at the cost of 
everybody else. Yeah, he's like, there's a whole group of guys in here who are already mid-plotting an escape and attack on the guards and are kind of like, you know, doing a reasonably good job of building up to it. And, you know, as you watch this, you're like, why are you even dealing with this guy? It kept frustrating. He's like, clearly, he does not give a fuck about what you're doing. He's untrustworthy. Yeah. He keeps screwing things up for you. Like, yeah. you know, you would have pushed him out of the way. You yeah. Wouldn't have, you wouldn't have accepted any of his nonsense. Yeah, um, exactly. And But this is shot in, you know, not quite real time, but it's in very, in a very, very limited, it's basically a day and a half. It's, it, um, it should be shot in, like, I think no shot in here is any further than a foot and a half away from the subject, too. Yeah. Everything is shot very anyway, tight. It's, fair, it's, <laughs> it's, in, it's in these long, super tight close-ups uh, where anything that happens happens in the background behind him mm-hmm. or if it's or over his shoulder occasionally. Uh, but those are very, very rare. This, I, I mean, I, I actually liked the choice for the cinematography. I no, think that's one the, of the part I did like. That's one of the yeah. strongest things about it. I think if you hadn't have made that, you probably would have spent a lot more time going like, uh, you know... Uh, this seems up there with um, uh, the day the, cra- the, the day the clown uh, <laughs> cried in kind of swing and a miss. But it, yeah, the, the the basic idea here works extremely well because of how you concentrate on a character who is extremely broken. But then you know there is this problem of like why are they like clearly this guy is not somebody you wanted near you in the first place why would you keep going hey you we've got this really important thing we need you need somebody to do you do it when two minutes earlier you're all going this guy's a fucking idiot I, I guess it's for me it's like yes of course you feel bad for anybody who was inside the the, the concentration camps of course the total understanding why he'd be this broken on the other hand. All these other guys are in the concentration camp, too, and are actually actively trying to accomplish something. And I kept going, I'd really prefer to see what those guys are doing than this guy, because I don't really – I get that he's having just a mental breakdown thinking that this kid is his son and wants to bury him no matter what at all costs, but I don't care. Yeah. I just don't care. I'm like, let's move to the guys who are trying to do something and get out of here. And I know there's something deeper going on here I'm probably missing, Mm. but I don't care. No, <laughs> like, I mean, there's I, so many Holocaust films and stories out there. Yeah. I think the most remarkable thing about this film is the cinematography, which does something which glosses over the fact that you are, you are not. Be- I, and I think that's that's the deliberate thing. Is like you know, you know, it's focusing on a guy who makes <laughs> makes every bad decision, mm-hmm. um, and by literally focusing on him, it means you don't get as much of the perspective of the other people there. But as soon as you start thinking about the perspective, you go, "This guy is getting other people killed in an environment that is already extraordinarily dangerous. That, yeah, that they are probably going to die. And like people drop dead and are shot or you know executed." constantly around him. The most interesting thing, the way that technique is used here is that as he's going through the most horrifying th- parts of the concentration camps and the Holocaust are going on around him, but you can't really see it. Yeah. Because it's all like, I mean, it's so tight focused on him. Everything else is kind of blurry, but you hear every degree of it and you see like blurry images of it as he, go- as he goes by and he's walking by people being you do- burned alive. You and, don't need you know. to see it because you already know it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to, you, you, you're not going to be able to compete with Sallow. No. So this goes, look, fill in the blanks for yourself. Let's, this is a character study. The question is how, how much patience do you have for the character that is being studied? Uh, and this comes with a commentary with the director, uh, with the lead actor, and then with the cinematographer. Good call. And then there's a Q&A at the Museum of Tolerance, wherever that is, uh, with the director, actor, and cinematographer as well. And then one deleted scene. 
Like I said, it's one of those things, if you do enjoy watching arty, like, Holocaust films, yeah, you're gonna, of course you're gonna watch this. It won Best Foreign foreign Language Film at the Oscars. You're gonna go, wow, okay, I gotta see that. I just think, like, maybe temper your expectations a bit. I yeah. don't really think it, I, I thought it was definitely not the best foreign language film that came out. And it, it also wasn't actually the best foreign language film about uh, about the Holocaust that we watched this week. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, it was not. I thought much. What the hell? I made the wrong link. Uh, much better do. was Phoenix. Yes, so much better. Also Which nominated. I for- uh, I gotta say, I think is my pick of the week. Uh, I think so too. Phoenix is one of those movies that you really don't know what it's doing completely in terms of tone when it, until it's over. And then I was like, wow, this was completely. A very unique and almost sort of like outsider looking in take on American film noir. Yeah. Just with a very different sensibility that works the more you are familiar with film noir. Because it keeps changing what you expect in really smart ways from film noir. Even going to the point of going, here's a gun. And then the gun is never used and isn't pertinent at all. It pulls stuff like that. And you're like, no, it's Phil Dory. When you show a gun, that means someone's going to get shot. Nope. Not in Phoenix. Nope. Uh, Which starts off with two women crossing the border into into Switzerland. Um, And after World War II, one of them has... is fine. The other one is clearly suffered some very, very horrible injuries during the war. She's going to get plastic surgery. Uh, And the surgeon says, look, you don't want to try and be yourself. You don't want to have that same face because it will never be right. You want to become someone else. And she rejects this. And this this is a very, very palpable metaphor for what is going on, that she goes back and take demands with her friend that they go back to Germany, you know, where they were sent to the concentration camps, yeah, the, and she wants to try and find her husband because yeah. she's not sure what happens to him. And her friend is like, "No, you don't. Your husband definitely turned you and everybody else in. Yes, there is no question in my mind that he was traitor with on you. I mean, the reason you went to the camp was because of him." And she's like, "No, I absolutely don't believe that." Yeah. Um. So the question is, when she does find him, what happens? Particularly because. Much as she has tried to have the, her old face be reconstructed, she's not quite her. Yeah, she definitely she looks, looks... She looks like somebody who looks like how she used to look. Yeah, she looks like someone who looks like her. Yeah. Yeah, which is couldn't be any more clear when she actually does catch up with her husband, who's working like it as a busser at, a, at the local nightclub called Phoenix. Yes. Uh, and he goes, hey, you, you look a lot like my... Ex-wife, my dead, my dead wife, my dead wife who died in the concentration camps. Yeah, who, if we, if if we were able to convince someone that you were really her, we could get a lot of money and split it that she yeah. has coming to her. Which, in fact, this woman was warned of by her friend that he he's just going to try and take your money yeah. if you if you do find him because that's all he's interested in. Uh, clearly, is the case, and yet. Because this woman does truly love this guy and has this illusion based on who she thought he was, uh, goes along with it and starts prepping with him to prepare to play herself with to, instructions by her husband, who, is, as it goes along, is clear, didn't know her at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's really fantastic about this is, is that this feels like, you know, just immediate post-war Germany. Mm-hmm. This feels like a place which is under occupation, where 
the rules have broken down where people are making bad decisions because they've been through such terrible things. And the, some, some of the survivors have, have done terrible things to get themselves through the war. And like, but like you said, this is not. And while the stuff where you go, the, the symbolism is very heavy handed. It works. Yeah. Which is what noir does well. Noir is, is symbol and metaphor and subtext hitting you over the head. And it also deals with issues of identity in a way that, Identicals could never even yeah, not come even. close <laughs> to comprehending what this film says about who she is and her attempts to deny that what that the war changed her. That Which her experiences is, in the camp The symbol is her. she is a symbol for Germany. Yeah. Post-World War II, Reconstructionist Ger- Germany. I mean, yeah. she is the symbol for Germany. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so beautifully and tenderly done. Yeah. And it, 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 in this film where you you never feel like she is a dumb victim. No, she, not You at feel all. like she is somebody who has been through such incredible trauma that she wants to try and recapture something of what was her life as clearly, you know, I mean, she was a, a torch singer in, in Weimar, Germany, and everything then falls apart. But she wants to go back to that and never can because not only was it not what she thought it was, but it's gone forever as well. That's what makes this so brilliant. That's what makes this so touching and smart and so well played out and with such subtlety. Uh, and this is uh, Chris, uh, Christian Petzold, whose whole career has really been about experimenting with genre film and doing a very different take on genre, different interpretations of it that have all been reportedly very fascinating. I have not gone to see his other films. This is also, I believe, his sixth uh, time he's worked with the lead actress in here as well in his films, uh, Nina Haas yeah. has repeatedly worked with her. Hey, you find something that works, I guess you go with it. Yep. But I have a feeling we'll be seeing re-releases of his previous films here in America yeah. soon. He's because- never had the, the kind of profile. I mean, and this kind of got screwed a little bit on the release. It, you know, it didn't turn up in as many markets as I think it Not, should. No, no, they should have made a point of getting it out on Blu-ray before, well before the Oscars. Yeah, because I, I thought this was fabulous. Um, and of course, this is a Criterion edition, which alone should tell you something to go like, oh, well, Criterion puts up a first run of something, that means it must be pretty goddamn good usually um and there's uh you know conversations between the director and the lead actress uh talking about the professional relationship uh there's an interview with the cinematographer cinematography is just gorgeous and calls recalls classic noir more than any other element probably in the film uh there's a a standard featurette of the making of phoenix and then of course an illustrated leaflet that comes with it altogether really great i think both of our pick of the week but that brings us to the end of the standard reviews. Yes. And on to the, uh, what is, uh, what, how you say, uh, giveaway. And our giveaway for this week is the, the final, maybe. Well, they <laughs> were saying that until it, until it made a shit ton of money. Yeah. Uh, j- Chapter of the trilogy of Ip Man, or as I like to call it, IP Man, because I like the Defending idea of... Defending intellectual property I like, with Kung Fu. I like the idea of, like, this guy is a Kung Fu guy who just goes around beating up people over censorship. I think over, the over weirdest um, uh, Ace Wright Attorney at Law spinoff ever. Right? Uh, no, this is the, now, this is not one of those other knockoffs. There's a lot of Ip Man knockoff films that came out with a variety of other well-known Hong Kong actors playing the role of this classic, legendary figure in Chinese history. Uh, this in contemporary is, Chinese... Chinese history as well. Yes, indeed. In case you don't know, this really is the guy that that trained Bruce Lee. It really is. It really is. So he was that last generation before, like, Bruce Lee revealed the secrets of Kung Fu to the white man and was murdered for it by the the Chinese mob. Allegedly! (laughs) 
probably not true. Don't, uh, make, don't uh, let me take out my vibrating bomb. Probably not true. They really should do a Bruce Lee episode on stuff you should know. Um, this is the third chapter in the Ip Man trilogy that does bring back Donnie Yen. And it's definitely the one where Donnie's like, you know, I want to act more and nobody should someone's got to point out to Donnie. Donnie, acting is not your strong point. No. Uh, you are not the great. There's a scene where he's supposed to be crying and he can just, he just can't do it. He's like, uh, it's so awkward to watch. He's, he's so wonderfully stoic that it, it kind of like, oh, you're blessed. Nice try. Yeah. Ain't happening. But I mean, on his downside, a lot of this film is indeed a lot more talky than it needs to be. On the upside, one of the best fights in any of these films is in this, the final fight of this film. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that there's some stuff in here which is very historic and there's some stuff in here which is clearly, <laughs> clearly bullshit. Yeah. Like Mike instance, Tyson turning up is clearly bullshit. Yeah. There's a bullshit. whole side character that's added <laughs> that really, it's the weirdest thing ever, quite frankly. Mike Tyson's character in here, whose entire storyline arc ends with the fight between them that is only there just, I mean, it's like self-serving of its own purpose. It's like a serpent with its tail in its own mouth. Like, we got to get Mike Tyson in here. And his character's whole point was that we got to get Mike Tyson in here. Yeah. It's like just for this fight. Like, we led up to this fight. And then it's like, okay, well, we did the fight. And um, I guess that part of the story just disappears from here yeah. on out. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> the, the, the basic plot is that on one side, Itman is besieged by traditionalists, um, who say that he is undercutting what the real meaning um, of uh, uh, Wing Chun of Wing Chun is, and doing things that you shouldn't do, and that the ancient masters will be really upset because he uses his feet more than he should, stuff like that. And on the other side, you know, you got the um, uh, Western gangsters in, who were in Hong Kong at the time. Um, so you got, like, you know, you got a lot going on there. But what you really do have is some. Fucking great fight sequences, of course, including that final fight sequence, which is phenomenal. Because Donnie Yen is still, uh, you know, I think he's uh, um, he's he's fifty one or something like that now. He's still one of the best on screen fighters uh, living today. I mean, like that guy can do no wrong when it comes to fight scenes. And also, the, <laughs> yeah, when they, when you get the big three minute fight with uh, Mike Tyson, yeah, which is yeah, Wing Chun versus boxing. I mean, it's, it's what in uh, old mixed martial arts terms was referred to as a freak fight. Yeah, it's just two guys of different weights and completely different styles. Throw them together, see what happened it's a solid Actually really good it's a solid fight yeah. i was like wow this is a lot better than i thought it was going to be despite once again storyline wise you're just like okay this is ridiculous this is even in this yeah i mean this, but, this is this is fun there's some really good uh, you know uh you know the worst the worst thing is don is uh, donnie's acting the best thing is that this is a another another it man movie yeah uh, yeah and i'd certainly i would still say this is probably the weakest of the three if only for the fact that it has like the longest slow part getting into it but it does have some wonderful but dancing as well it does have some dancing donnie, in it donnie Yen can dance Di- he's, a, he's a little mover yeah well most most uh, fighters can dance yeah. it's you know uh like the style of martial arts developed for the screen is actually based more on dancing than it is on martial Bruce arts Lee actually started off as a dancer yes he did yeah uh, uh, and this is appropriate too, because I and I wonder how much of it is true that Ip Man was being attacked for his derivation from the original style, because m- usually you hear about that was Bruce Lee getting shit for that. Oh, the, well, know? yeah, but there was always there was always you know people of throwing allegations of like oh it's it's not the pure form of this that or the other yeah people get super fussy about it well this is our giveaway this week and here's how you win it you gotta go on your twitter and you gotta go twitter you gotta at one of us net see that's us see yep follow us yeah and you you gotta put at one of us net hashtag ip man giveaway and what do they have to write okay um 
like we said, one of the, one of the best bits of this is the uh, the freak fight with uh, Mike Tyson, which is just put in there just so they can have you know a boxing versus, versus Wing Chun fight. If there was an Ip Man four, and you got to uh, you know, uh, and there was another of these stylistic clash fights, just if any fighter in any form, MMA, kickboxing, whatever the hell you want, who would you like to see Donnie Yen go up against in Ip Man four? For the record, there is a character actor in here playing a young Bruce Lee, but originally they were going to go with a CG Bruce Lee, uh, because apparently one of the producers is one of Bruce Lee's sons, and he said, yeah, yeah, I've got rights, and then it turned out he totally didn't have rights, even after they had started filming those scenes, and the the people who did own the rights to Bruce Lee were like, fuck you. Yeah, I'm, no. actually, I'm also going to say <laughs> it has to be a living fighter. Okay. You can't, so you can't drag somebody out from antiquity. It has to be a living fighter. Fair Who would enough. you like to see in in the freak fight for Ip Man 4? And that brings us to the end of this week's Digital Noise. We hope you enjoyed it. Hey, and we'll, boo. We'll be back in another week uh, where me and Joe are going to get together and talk about a whole bunch of stuff, including the stuff, which I'm super excited to Ooh. talk about. I know, right? Oh, so good. Larry Cohen, one of my favorites. Ah, bonkers. Uh, anyway, until then, I don't say it anymore, so you'll have to say uh, it. I'm not saying it. it. No release is too big. No release is too small. From criteria to catastrophe, we review them all. Maybe not them all. There's one or two I was like, fuck that. Ah. <laughs>